0: So, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I read a story about a pastor who was visiting an elderly shut-in. And he noticed on her coffee table that she had an unbelievable number of prescription drugs. And without exaggeration, he said that there were dozens of pill bottles lined up across the table. And he had visited her just before supper, So as he watched this elderly saint, uh, she took 16 different medications while she ate. And with each bottle she opened, she explained what each medication was and how long she had been taking it. She did that for the first number, but then when she came to the last five medications, she opened up the bottles and pulled out the pills and admitted that she had no idea what they were. And I think that's a lot like a lot of people in Christian churches these days. They go to church, they go through the prescribed ritual, and they only know what they've been told, but they sometimes don't understand the fullness of what the Bible says. They just go and do these rituals. And I think the world loves those rituals, um, there are many people who will go to church and they think that sitting in a church will make them a Christian. Well, that doesn't work any more than sitting in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Um, you know, they, um, the world just really wants, uh, a God who is just this vague being that's out there, someone who is, is a higher being, and this, God is defined by love and characterized by concern. And this God is just there to be called upon in help of, and, uh, during, uh, troubling times and to comfort when, when trials come your way. And I think it's interesting that in our godless culture, so many routinely call for prayer and offer up prayer in times of distress and tragedy. This idea of God that our culture is so fond of, though, is is really not the true God. It's not the God of the Bible. Theirs is a comfy, cuddly, cushy God that's born out of idolatry. This idea of God is a God of their own making a God that looks more like Santa Claus than he does the God of the Bible. Now, we're not called to pass judgment on those people. We were in that same boat before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we were one of those who were once blinded, but now we see and so as Christians, we're, we're called to examine ourselves and examine our, our own hearts so that we don't accept the idolatry of the world, so that we don't take a, a holy God and make him into a token helper. Peter under the inspiration of the holy scripture or holy spirit uses very strong language here in our text for this morning and some some of that language is actually very difficult to to handle but as Christians we of all people should understand that we should fear God because we aren't ignorant of who he is We know that God judges uh, impartially according to each person's work. And why do we do what we do? We do what we do because we look in Scripture and we see what God has called us to be. We do what we do because we are the ones who call upon this impartial judge. And when we call upon Him, we call upon Him as Father. And as long as we're still living, we are considered sojourners in this world. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. And we are never to utterly foolishly live our lives presuming that things will be Good at the end. All we have to do is make it through life. Make it to the final day and everything will be good. We can't presume that. The world thinks that. The world thinks that when you die, you go to heaven just because you were born. That's unscriptural. Those who are in Christ Jesus go to heaven. That's why we take the Gospel To the lost. That's why we have missionaries. That's why when we're in the community, we talk about the grace of Jesus Christ. So that they too can end up standing before God on that final day and not presume that they'll be okay. Dictionary.com says that to presume upon is to go too far in acting unwarrantedly or taking liberties. It means to take for granted. The related adjective is presumptuous, which Webster's Dictionary says to overstep due bounds and taking liberties. Instead of presuming on a verdict of the final day, Scripture says we are to conduct ourselves in every aspect of our lives, living always, with a reverent fear and trembling before the one who will judge impartially according to each person's works. And we saw, uh, as we have been going through 1 Peter chapter 1, the indicatives, how things are, in verses 1 through 12. And then last Sunday, we saw the imperatives, how things must be in light of how things are. And we saw that beginning in verse 13. And we reflected on some of these imperatives last week. We saw it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it says, And He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. And so let's look at more of these imperatives that are found in our text for this morning. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 17 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 1 starting with verse 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality Judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you through him who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so having previously considered the glorious future that we have in Christ, Peter is very mindful and so ought we be that none of these blessings will be enjoyed until we first go through the last judgment this is no doubt why peter addresses this important reality here because people are t- are tempted to shrink back and compromise on their fidelity to the to the lord on account of threat or suffering or intimidation of of others and peter shakes them into sobriety Gets them to come back to to reality. And I like what John MacArthur says. He says that uh, every Sunday, people get built up and they're all excited. And then during the week, they start to become more and more worldly. And he says they need to be jerked back into reality of Scripture. And he says, and I'm the jerk. So I guess I'm the jerk this morning because my job is to jerk you back into the reality of Scripture. And so Peter, having said that, he gives them an incredible assurance that as we stand before this judge and look into his face, do you know what we see? We see our Father. We see our Heavenly Father. And that's where Peter brings us when we begin this introductory statement in verse 17 he introduces us to god's role as judge of the universe and he says here in verse 17 and if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each each one's work conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear and i want to to get you to understand something of utmost importance And that is that by the abundant grace of God, we enter into salvation. We are born in righteousness, not of our own, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is the reality of our second birth. We saw that in verse 4 as Peter told us that we have an inheritance reserved in heaven. When you are born again, you become a child of God, sons and daughters of the high most high God. And as adopted children, we have an inheritance. We become joint heirs with Christ. And remember in verse 14, Peter referred to this reality once again, speaking about our responsibility as children of God to live holy lives. And this relationship is now mentioned again here in verse 17. This time, though, it's in reference to accountability. We are called to live holy lives as Christians. We are reminded that God the Father will hold us accountable. And verse 17 also refers to God's position as judge. We are told that He is an impartial judge. And He judges without respect to persons. You know what that means is no one gets a free pass. God doesn't care if you're Jew or Gentile when it comes to judging. No one gets special treatment in God's judgment. He's not influenced by anything. Whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, whether you're black or white or any other color, that doesn't influence God. And it doesn't influence Him by our nationality or the language that we speak. He's not influenced by our social standing. He doesn't care what size bank account you have. He is an impartial judge. And think about how important this doctrine of God's impartial judgment was to the early church. What was happening in the early church had never happened before. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, they were coming together to worship a holy God together. Together. That hadn't happened. They worshiped on equal ground. And this caused some rather serious problems early on. Some Jewish Christians were convinced that the Jews had special standing before God the Father. And this had to be addressed more than once. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses Peter about this issue. The reality is that God is impartial in His judgment but I think it's clear that Peter is speaking to the fact that God is no respecter of persons in this sense. That in every nation, a person who fears God and does what is right is accepted by God. The person who fears God has the beginning of wisdom because to fear God is to regard, have regard for Him and His word. This can only take place when God is intending to bestow His saving grace on an individual. Otherwise, they are blind to it. They don't have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. It's not until God's grace is upon that person. But I think it's still odd that in this world that we live in, they like this very vague idea of God. And my fear is that many churches, in order to add to their numbers and to make people feel good, they want sort of a vague idea of who God is as well. Many places will talk about how great you are. We can't worry about how great we are because we're not. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. It's how great He is. But they look for that place to spend eternity. They hope that there is no such thing as hell. They hope that in the end, they'll be in heaven. Do you know what? If I could, if I could say everyone is going to heaven and it would be true, I would say it, but it's not that there is a hell, and that people need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ in order to gain eternal bliss? Because you see, God is under no obligation to provide everlasting peace and joy to anyone because everyone is already condemned for their sinfulness. And so in verse 17, again, Peter says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And so that begs the question, what kind of fear should I have? Well, I believe the context here answers this for us, but let me state it this way. Fear can be like being afraid, like the Israelites were afraid of of Pharaoh because they were slaves in Egypt And they were afraid of their taskmasters. But fear can also be a deep respect, like a child listening to the Father's word and doing what He asked them to do. And so there's a distinction, a distinction between what is called a servile fear or a slavish fear and a filial, childlike fear. Martin Luther said this, and I quote, do not fear the Father because of pain and punishment as non Christians and also the devil fear. But be afraid lest he forsake you and withdraw his hand as a pious child is afraid that it may anger its father and do something displeasing to him. End quote. And so, as I mentioned, the context shows Peter has already told us that the Father loves us, that he chose us from eternity past, and we saw that in verse 2. And that the Father has given us new birth. He says that in verse 3. And that we as the Father's obedient children love to do what He asks us to do. And this is the kind of fear that the Word of God has always called God's people to have. In Deuteronomy 4.10, we see after Israel left Egypt, the Lord gathered them to Mount Sinai. And He said, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and that they may teach their children so. Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Also contrast the living of the ungodly in Proverbs 3, seven. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. See, this is the fear. We as the Father's children respond. It's a reverential awe. It's, it's looking at His marvelous holiness. And you know what we do? We seek to imitate Him. As a child wants to imitate his or her mom or dad, Second Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, Since we have promise, promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear for the Lord. And so you see, God's holiness will be manifest to all to see on that last day. And that's why Peter links fearing God now with our works at the end the father is the impartial judge and there's no dichotomy for us between the father's gracious acceptance of us already and his judgment of our works at the end that's because jesus christ has already been judged for our sins on the cross on the cross in order to justify us that's not the question here At the end, the works that we have done in the realm of our sanctification will either be judged to distribute eternal rewards or publicly uh, display whether we have faith or not. That's what Martin Luther actually believed as well. But you know what? We're not paralyzed with servile fear. We're motivated with filial fear. And so why should we Why should we fear God? And that's what Peter goes on to explain in verses 18 through 21. And he uses the opening verb knowing in verse 18, which explains the imperative verb, verb in verse 17. Verse 18, he says, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but your aimless conduct received by tradition of your father's. Now, this is very interesting. The word knowing here is the Greek word oikeos. It's not the usual word that would have been used as gnosis or gnosis, which is to know, to experience, experientially know. The word oikeos means to belong to a household or related by blood, kindred. And so if we were to look at verse 18, in light of that, it could say, therefore, belonging to the household of God, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your father. That just blows my mind. What is so interesting about this verse is that we can tend to say we were not ransomed with perishable things like silver and gold. You know, we start to think, man, am I ever valuable? Look what God has done for me. But that's not what Peter's saying. He's focusing on how precious Jesus is. His focus is on Jesus Christ. You don't worship God by thinking about how wonderful you are. You worship Him when you remember how worthy He is. Jesus redeemed you. It's all about his worth, his value. Therefore, belonging to the household of God, you were not redeemed with corruptible things. The value is on God and what treasure it is to be part of his household. And it says we were redeemed. What does redeemed mean? Well, the Greek word is uh lutroo, and it means to re uh, to release on receipt of ransom. Ransom? What ransom? Well, all people are held in captivity to sin because we're all under condemnation of the law. And if we're to re, uh, be liberated and set free from captivity, someone somewhere, somehow, has to pay that ransom. Redemption deals specifically with the cost Of salvation. That there was a payment received for our liberation. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Redemption was God's greatest work. You ever think about that? Redemption was God's greatest work. He was able to speak all of creation into existence. Ex nihilo meaning out of nothing. He spoke and it was. But you know what? Man fell. And now he couldn't take this sinful, wretched person and just speak because now he was working with something And so, you see, before Jesus redeemed us, our thinking was futile, our understanding was darkened, our hearts were hardened, and we gave ourselves to satisfying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But those who have received God's gracious gift of repentance and trusted in Christ for their salvation now know that no amount of silver or gold could possibly ransom them from this slavery of sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, 7 and 8, truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and never suffice. You see, sinful man simply does not possess the resources to redeem himself. The cost of redemption is wonderfully displayed in the passion and the greatness of God's love for us while we were still lost, Why we were still powerless. God sent His one and only Son to pay that ransom. It took sacrifice. He couldn't just speak it like he did at creation. He had to purify what was there. And so Peter reminds us that we were ransomed and and redeemed, not only from the guilt and condemnation of sin, but also the lifestyle and the habits and the ways of sin. And again, in verse 18, at the end, it says that we were redeemed from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. Peter is the only New Testament writer who uses this Greek word. It's patroperidatos. And it means ancestral family heritage. And he means it in a negative way outside of the New Testament, it's always used in a positive way. The ancestral traditions or the way of life handed down from generation to generation was always the key to healthy and stable and happy society. In the world that of Peter's day, the ancestral Family heritage was the DNA code for acceptable and appropriate living in life. But you see, now Peter takes what was in his day a positive, an exalted word, and turns it completely on its head by attaching another horrible word to it the word aimless. The word aimless. This is a word that in the Old Testament was used to describe the vanity and emptiness and worthlessness of an idol. What Peter is saying is that every single way of living that's been handed down from generation to generation, if it's not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is vain and it's worthless. In every culture, in every society, American and likewise, this family heritage can only be described as a way of living on an idolatry which leads to condemnation and death. As a matter of fact, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 16 19, O Lord, my strength and and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things that are of no profit. And so here's the thing. I would challenge anyone to try to find the word Pharisee in the Old Testament. You're not going to find it. It's not there. Because Pharisees came about during the time period between the Old uh, Testament and the New Testament. During the, the time when the Old Testament was closed and the New Testament started. In the New Testament, we find plenty of of writings referring to them. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls them the hirelings that jump the fence. The one who, you know, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But those who are hired hands, when they see trouble come, they end up scattering. They leave they jumped the fence because they're just hired hands. They don't have a love and concern. They're just doing their job. And that's what he says the Pharisees are like. And see, what, what happened is the Pharisees ended up saying, you know, when Moses came down from the mountain, he had the, the law, the Torah. But then he also had something called the rabbinical spoken law. At the time, it was actually called the tradition of the elders the rabbinical law or the tradition of the elders was was then it was all spoken it was handed down from person to person but then eventually it was written down and so it was passed from generation to generation problem was it wasn't true these things that were said went beyond what god ever said and this happens all the time when someone is told something, they think, you know what? I can increase the value of this story by adding a little bit. You know who did that the first time we see in Scripture? Eve. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from every tree in the garden but one. Do you know what Eve told the serpent? We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said don't touch it. She added that. And that's what happened with this oral law. It was garbage. It was not to be followed, it was not to be listened to. To better see this, if you would turn to Mark chapter 7, we'll look at verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Here, starting with verse 1. Then the Pharisees. And some of the scribes came together to him, to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way, holding, here we have it, to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching, uh, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your mother and your fathers, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a a man says to his father or mother, What? Whatever profit you have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through the traditions you have handed down and many such things you do. You see what happened. Do you know, uh, first of all, you know why the disciples didn't wash their hands? Jesus told them not to. He said, no, uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. They didn't listen to their forefathers and what they had been passed down. Do you know what the washing of hands was? That was when they walked in, after being in the market with those filthy Gentiles, you had to cleanse yourself. And I'm telling you what, this cleansing would make your mom ashamed. You would have a basin with a little pitcher of water. You take your left hand, put it over the basin. You pour just a little bit of water over your, your hand. It would be face down. Then you would take the pitcher with your, your left hand, right hand face down over the basin. You'd pour a little bit of water on top of that. Then you put the pitcher back down and grab it with the other hand again, your left hand, palm up little bit of water. Then you do the same thing. little bit of water on the right hand. And then after you got done doing that, you would say, I thank the Lord, creator of heaven and earth, that you have given me the commandment to wash my hands. Amen. Can you see? It's not really a cleansing. I mean, your mom would say, come on, scrub up to your elbows. You know, get the suds going. that wasn't happening. This was tradition, and they thought they were they were good because they were holding to this tradition and so Jesus is saying, "No, you're doing this. it's not for me it's not for me at all And so we get to where we go. How have we really been redeemed? Verse 19 of the text tells us, with the precious blood of Christ, as of lamb without blemish and without spot. It took the precious blood of Christ. In other words, He was a spotless lamb. He he was sinless. He didn't have to go to the cross to suffer for your sins, but He did. As a matter of fact... When Adam and Eve sinned, God says, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. You see, physical death started to come into play then, but what happened is they died spiritually. They no longer had the ability, hotline to God, because their spirit was dead. That's what the whole born again, your spirit is quickened, made alive. But here's the thing, is, he said, On the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. Jesus was born of a virgin. You know how that original sin gets passed on? Gets passed on from the man, from Adam, not Eve, from Adam to Adam's son to the belt. You just keep going, right? From man to man to man to man. And that's why the uh, abrahamic covenant was the covenant where it was circumcision so that it showed the reproduction that it was a a uh, sign of god's grace upon them and so here they are they end up having this this uh where sin is passed on but then we come to jesus christ he's born of a virgin That wasn't passed on. So guess what wasn't also passed on? Original sin. His life, our lives, are called of us because of the sin that indwells in us. But it didn't indwell in him. He was perfect. He didn't have his father's. Joseph wasn't his his true father. He didn't have that passed on. So his life wasn't required of him. Do you understand that? He could have lived eternally here on earth. You want to know how much He loves you? He said, I came to redeem willingly, not having to. We sort of think, you know, well, Johnny gave his life over in the war for us. Well, Johnny might have given his life but johnny was going to die anyways and when johnny gave his life he he could have said you know he gave his life for my freedom johnny might have gotten our freedom initially but johnny couldn't have kept it because as soon as johnny's life was done our freedom could have been taken right back from us not true with christ because he's still alive he was risen, he risen was risen from the dead and he Keeps us. And so we see that Christ, he was sinless. He was perfect always in pleasing God. He never offended God. You know, the command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't do that for a millisecond. He did not do it for a millisecond. He was always pleasing to God. He never grieved God the Father. He was perfectly obedient to Him. But then something great happened that only God could do, that only God could have thought of or executed. God took all the wretched, ugly, damnable sins of every single person from all of His people And he put them on his son. God's wrath should burn against us. But it burned against his son while he was on the cross. And he bore the penalty of all his people. Only God could do this. Only the son of God had the power and ability to be the substitute for human sin. He's the lamb of God. The blood that was shed on the cross was shed for your sin and my sin, and the and the sins of His people of all time. And so, in verse twenty, we read, "He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last t- times for you." You know, when Paul was in Athens, the philosophers there asked him about this new doctrine that he was teaching. Well, it might have been new to them, but the gospel is nothing new. The gospel didn't start 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on the earth. The gospel was established before the foundation of the world. God, because of who he is, knew man would need redemption. As a matter of fact, he decreed that man would need redemption. This is actually the, the theological term is superlapsarian where God decreed before the foundations of the earth that man would fall. Do you know why? He could have kept us all holy, or he could have just said, you know what, man's going to fall, and and they're all going to hell. But he didn't. He wanted to show his power, his love, his grace toward undeserving people. He wanted to show how mighty and loving he is, how merciful he is to people that didn't deserve it. God knew mankind would need a Redeemer. And God the Son desired to fill the will of God the Father. It's not chance that brought the good news of salvation to mankind. It wasn't as if Jesus one day said, you know what, I'm tired of being a carpenter. I think I'm going to take up preaching. No, this was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Scripture says that there is the preexistence of Christ. That's why he said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1, 14, it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ was manifest in these last days. And... And that's what verse twenty, the end of verse twenty says. When we look at the last days, we are not looking at sequential, we are looking at chronological. Everyone goes, Oh, we're in the last days. Do you know when the last days started? At the ascension of ascension of Christ. That's when they started. So back in biblical times, they could say, we're in the last days. Because there's one more thing to happen. And that's what it's saying here. There is one more thing that's going to happen. It's not as we're getting closer to the end before He comes and now we're in the last days. We were in the last days from the beginning. And so the, the Greek word that, that, uh, paul or, or Peter uses is Phanero'o. and it's it, it's uh, he he says it be, will be manifest, it will be shown it will be rendered apparent in the last days and you see, it was throughout human history that God planned to make it very apparent. Anyone that has ever been saved has been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those sacrifices that they did didn't cleanse anyone eternally. It was pointing to Christ. It was pointing to His sacrifice. It is. It was a shadow of what was to come. And so you sit there and you go, well, you know, what happened then? How... I mean, what, what was the manifestation? The manifestation is that Christ came. Pre-cross, they knew God is our Savior. Post-cross, we go, Jesus Christ is the God, our Savior. We have a greater knowledge and a greater revelation of that now that the canon of Scripture is closed. And so finally, in verse 21, we read, Who who through him believe in God, who are raised from the dead, and give him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, the resurrection is the key to Christian doctrine. When Jesus made the perfect sacrifice for sin, he broke the power of sin, defeated death, Actually, I don't know if anyone's ever read John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It's quite the read. I, I, I read it, and I, you know, I had to read one paragraph, and then re- go, I'm not sure, scratch my head, and then read the next paragraph, and go, oh, now I get it. And I had to go back and reread the first paragraph. But it is, it is wonderful, because he's talking about, in the death of Christ, death for his people died. He rose from the dead. His resurrection is proof that his sacrifice was perfect and acceptable to God. And that's why the resurrection is so vital vital to Christians. as we look at the day that we we uh, traditionally celebrate the Lord's resurrection on either called Easter or Resurrection Sunday. I think we need to focus on what it means and not get distracted by what the world says. The passage teaches that Jesus was glorified by God. Verse 21 says, And He gave Him glory that your faith might and hope might be in God. Jesus received glory from God and he fulfilled prophecy. The Bible tells us, therefore, to live in fear. This command is grounded in theology. This passage teaches us of who God is. He is our Father. He is our judge. He is holy. Jesus received glory from God the Father, fulfilling this prophecy. And then we see what he has done for Christians. Don't come to the Lord flippantly. Don't think that Jesus is going to give us a bear, big bear hug. Come to him and worship him for who he is. And know that the creator of all things loves you if you are truly in him come with a fear a dear a deep reverence and respect for god come and worship him in spirit and in truth and as i talked about that old lady with the pills and then we talked about how the pharisees came in and did this stuff we need to put away human traditions and idolatrous religion they and ent- they, they offer an empty illusion. Hope can only be found in faith, faith in God who raised Christ from the dead. And I'll tell you what, I understand we're living in a world right now that's becoming increasingly unfriendly to Bible believing Christians, but think of this. What an opportunity we have. What an opportunity to let the powerful Word of God motivate us to practice fervent love. One thing we can't do is to sit there and say, you know what, that disgusts me what this person is doing and then make them the enemy. They're not the enemy. If that's true, you were also. You are an enemy of God before you're saved. But you know what, we shouldn't sit there and go, we're going to... Lock them out. They're the enemies. Isn't that what the Jews did with the Gentiles? You know what the, the Jews said of the Gentiles? They're just logs for the fire of hell. We can't do that. We have to have a passion for the world around us. And we have to understand the great opportunity that we have to take the word of God to people. This gospel that's always been from the foundation. From the foundation of the world, the gospel was set. And people need need to hear it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that our feeble lips aren't adequate to express the great truths of redemption. And Lord, we're so thankful that we are the people that you have redeemed and that you have unfolded this majestic plan for us and our feeble minds don't fully understand it and, we, and therefore we can't fully thank you for it. But we are so in gratitude to you. We, Whenever we think of this, we're just overwhelmed. And so we thank you for the plan to send a perfect Lamb, predestined, incarnate, resurrected and ascended. We thank you that through Jesus Christ we have been made your people, your church, your redeemed. And so now we desire that we'd actually live our lives as redeemed. That we might live as those who have been freed from sin. And that we can Point those who still live in the bondage of sin to the one who can redeem them. And we pray this in the name of our most precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.